You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning to you all. We're, we're, we're finishing out our four-week series that's focusing largely on God's Word, and, it's, and over the past three weeks we've been focusing on Psalm 119 as the psalm that gives us a kind of entry point into these larger issues about the significance of, of God's Word revealed in Jesus and attested to in Holy Scripture, that particular dynamic uh, through the, the pages of Psalm 119. So we're, we're, we're obviously not extracting um, anywhere near uh, the amount of, of juice or wine or whatever metaphor you want to use on Psalm 119. We have, we have picked at the surface here, and we'll do so today as well as we round things out, and, and perhaps um, give you and me as well a little bit of a, of a jolt or an impetus to continue to think about Psalm 119, this very rich and long um, and dense and yet beautiful psalm that gives us a sense of the completeness um, of the maturity of, of this overarching view um, of the ways in which a, a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, views the world around them. So let me say a word of prayer, and then I'll, I'll give you a, a simple outline of what my hopes are today as we finish out this series. So Lord Jesus, thank you that you have given us yourself. Um, you are the Word of God incarnate. You are God's speech of creation and reconciliation in our world. Jesus, you bring healing in your wings, and you have left us, O Lord, your word in the pages of the Old and the New Testaments to shape our minds and our hearts, our prayers and our thoughts toward you. And as we finish out today, I pray that you'll help me as a teacher and those who are listening to think through the dynamics of the text that's before us, and we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I want to deal with, in our last time together in Psalm 119, uh, two large issues, right, or two larger themes that we might see in Psalm 119. Um, I I won't go too far back in reverse, going to press forward this morning, but there's a sense in which the whole of Psalm 119 can be understood, not, not in a reductionistic way, but the whole of Psalm 119 can be understood as as Torah or, or maybe better, word of God piety, uh, the language of desire, the language of yearning, uh, the language of comfort, which is what we're go- about to go to here in a second. This is the language that's attached, that's predicated on the Torah, God's instruction, his precepts, his commands, his words, his ordinances. Again, that's a, those are technical terms that we're thinking of in a rather elastic way to speak about the written word of God itself that witnesses to the living word who is Jesus. And you have this, this sense when you work through Psalm 119 of a deep affection that the psalm has and the psalmist has for God's word. In other words, this this engagement of God's word is no uh, mere intellectual curiosity. The the, the life of the mind, uh, sweat equity of the mind that's necessary to wrestle with God's word is certainly not being dispensed with here. But all of that is being understood, the hard work of reading the Bible is being understood as in service of the word itself and a deep affection for it. The desires are there. The affections are there. Um, a matter of fact, I was reading 
And I wanted to bring some more of this material to bear on our discussion, but I was reading St. Augustine, uh, late 4th, early 5th century A.D. I was reading St. Augustine in his sermons and narrations on the Psalms, and he saved Psalm 119 for the last. I think I mentioned that in our first week together. And he talks about the first part of Psalm 119, giving to us an indication of the kind of person that the Bible is anticipating um, that would read the Word of God. And he says in, in, in his own commentary on this or a sermon on this that there are those who are interested in reading the Scriptures for the sake of intellectual debate and exchange alone. In other words, they have a kind of intellectual curiosity that's piqued um, by the Bible and the theological claims that the Bible makes, like they might be piqued by other intellectual interests as well. And Augustine's real quick to say that Psalm 119 shapes for us an understanding of the kind of reader that the Bible is anticipating, and it's not someone that sets their mind to the side, but it is certainly not someone that's driven by pure or mere intellectual curiosities. The language of desire and affection, um, that quote from St. Augustine that's probably quoted too much, but, but really it gets to the heart of so much of Augustine's understanding of the Christian life, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. That the kind of churning uh, internally that we have as human beings, that desire for pleasure or that desire for something other, something transcendent, Augustine understands that as an indication that our souls have within them an infinite hole that has to be filled by God and God alone, and that the Bible anticipates that kind of reader. I'm not coming merely uh, to get my um, intellectual fix or because I like a good theological debate, not to deny the importance of any of that. But there's an affection that's tied here. The language of desire riddles, works its way through, riddles its way through the whole of Psalm 119. So there's a sense in which the sort of larger umbrella of Psalm 119 can be understood within the frame of this uh, Torah piety, word of God piety, or in the Protestant tradition, the language that's often used is the language of the affections. Our affections are being raised here. Um, Jonathan Edwards famously talked about honey as a metaphor for um, our, our affections. It's one thing to talk about in a detached way the character of honey and to describe it in scientific terms as precise as those might be. It's another thing when one sticks your finger into the jar of honey and puts it on your tongue. Now there's a kind of affection that's attached to the, to the description of the honey itself that gives life and vibrancy to the, to the discussion itself. Psalm 119 is in effect saying, when you come to God's word, the honey of God's word, God is anticipating readers that are sticking their hands, like think Winnie the Pooh, right? They're sticking their hands deep in the honey jar of God's word and feasting and tasting and delighting in it. So those, that's, that, we've talked a lot about that over the past three weeks. Today I want to I zone in or home in on, on two more issues. The first one's going to be the way in which Psalm 119 understands God's word as comfort in our distress the way in which God's words comes, comes to us as a word of comfort in our distress. And the last larger point that I want to deal with today is the way in which Psalm 119 identifies God's word as both wonderful and life-giving. The wonderful and life-giving word of God. So first, God's word 
um, as comfort and distress. And if you're in your living room um, or wherever you are and you have a Bible near you, um, Psalm 119, verses 25 through 32. We're going to look at several sections here in Psalm 119 to, to let the psalm itself provide for us a grammar or even a thought process about how God's word comes to us um, as a word of comfort in our moments of distress. And so here in verse 25, uh, let me read this to you. And I'll talk about it as I go along. My soul clings to the dust. That language there already in verse 25 is, is helping us to understand that the context of the psalmist in this stanza here, the Dalit section, the D section of Psalm 119, that we're understanding this within the framework of the psalms of lament, the psalms of distress, of the psalms of disorientation. My soul is clinging to the dust. My very life is ebbing away. Um, we heard uh, a sermon on Jonah chapter 2 uh, several weeks back where Jonah talks about his soul or his life uh, being expunged from him as he was in the water, which appeared to be uh, on a first-class uh, train ticket toward Sheol or the land of the dead. He saw his soul uh, going away. So here you see the very essence of the psalmist's life, he says. It's clinging to the dust. So, so the first line of, of verse 25 gives us this sense of desperation and distress. My soul is hanging on by a thread, we might say. And what does the psalmist plea here? Give me life according to your word. One translation says, revive me according to your word. So the psalmist recognizes that he or she is in a moment of distress And in that distress and disorientation, where does the psalmist turn? The psalmist turns to God in invocation, in prayer, in supplication, and asks a very direct request of the Lord. Lord, give me life. My soul is ebbing away. I'm in the belly of the fish on the way to Sheol land, or the land of the dead, or the land of the pit. I'm clinging here to the dust Give me life, revive me, bring to life again my own soul according to your word. Let your word do its work. And here we have, right in verse 25 of Psalm 119, a rich biblical theological theme. How does God bring the world from non-being into being? And Martin Heidegger's famous question, why is there something and not nothing? One of the questions that probably provoked many of you to never want to take a philosophy class, right? Well, why is there something and not nothing? And the answer that the Bible gives to that very clearly, without any clearing of the throat, is Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's why there's something and not nothing, because of God's creative agency. And how does God bring nothingness into somethingness? How does he do that? By the effective power of his word and his spirit. The spirit hovers over the deep and God speaks his word. And the effective power of God's word is to take that which is disordered and chaotic and to bring order and cosmos to it. God's word brings life. I've been reading with my students um, 
at Beeson Divinity School with a theologian by the name of Hans Frey. Uh, a hard, hard read for, for many of us, for all of us, really. Hans Frey does a close reading of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he tries to attend very carefully to the way in which the biblical narratives of the fourfold gospel depict for us the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, the, it's, and it's a fascinating read, the way in which he understands the narrative of the Bible, the way the words go in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, providing some pressure on our understanding of who Jesus understood himself to be. And just to kind of get to his larger point, his larger point is when one reads the Gospels carefully, one understands that Jesus' very identity is all wrapped up in the necessity of life itself. He must be. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, which makes the unfolding of the fourfold Gospel to the resurrection of the dead a a necessary outcome of the biblical narrative itself. Jesus must be. Why? Think about Jesus' interlocution with Mary and Martha at the tomb of of Lazarus in John chapter 11. I am resurrection. I am the life. So here Jesus understands himself to be um, life itself. We translate that I am the life. But it's really much more direct. I am life. Life itself. That which is the opposite of death. And all of the deleterious consequences that we know in our world that death has brought about because of sin. Jesus very clearly understands himself as the antipode, the opposite of all of that. I am life. So here you have that language of life in Psalm 119, being identified and predicated on God's word. My soul clings to the dust. I'm experiencing the effects of death in my world and in my life. Even though I'm still living, I'm experiencing the effects of death and sin in my world. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Give me life according to your word. God's word brings life. How does the psalmist go on? When I told you of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. And here again, we have another appeal that we see regularly through Psalm 119. Make me understand the way of your precepts. Again, the psalmist from beginning to end is a model, an exemplar for you and for me of the wise follower of Jesus Christ. What does the wise follower of Jesus Christ ask? Help me to understand Give me knowledge according to your word. Um, I will, and then he says in verse 27, I will, I will meditate on your wondrous works. Give me understanding of who you are. Give me an understanding of the largeness of your character and your being. Give me a sense that you are the creator who brings life into the world itself. Give me a sense of that. And an understanding of that, for what purpose? So that I can meditate on you. So that I can reflect on you. And and this is really crucial. And so that my reflection on you is not a wish projection of my best imagination or intellectual abilities, but as an understanding that's rightly ordered according to your life-giving word. That's what I'm hopeful for. Help me to understand so that I can think and reflect on you rightly, And meditate on your wondrous works. Look at verse 29. You get this sense here of what the psalmist is after. 
My soul melts away for sorrow. And here we go again. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. And this is an honest statement from the psalmist. An honest statement about ourselves and our human condition. A condition that we can never in this world fully escape until the resurrection of the dead. And that's this. Left to our own devices, false ways, false paths are always before us. And there's always an opportunity to turn left or right and follow those paths. If I find myself on autopilot, left to my own best religious instincts, the psalmist knows this. If I follow my own best instincts, even religiously understood, falseness is before me. Uh, the, The opposite of truth is before me. The only sure location of truth itself is in God because God is truth and I have no access to that truth apart from his life-giving word. Put false ways far from me. Graciously teach me your word. Teach me your law. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I've set your rules before me. I cling to your testimony. This is one of the things I love about Psalm 119 and really the Psalms in general is that they're um, they're not buttoned up. Uh, they're, they're not overly sedentary. Um, they're not proper, you know, from a certain kind of cultural or societal um, instinctual standpoint. Um, they're desperate. My soul clings. My soul melts. I'm clinging to your testimonies, O Lord. I'm not going to let them go. Don't let me be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And again, another beautiful confession from the psalmist in verse 32. I cannot run after your teachings, O Lord, according to my own best instincts. You have to enlarge my heart. Open up the capacities of my mind and my affections to run after your, your, your truth, your word. We see something very similar in, in verses 49 through 56. And I realize that um, I have to kind of kick this into hyperspeed here, but we see something similar in verses 49 through 56. Listen to what he says here, the psalmist. Remember your word, your servant, in which you have made me hope. And we know that the apostle Paul understands hope and faith as flip sides of the same coin. And what ultimately is faith and hope, saving faith, true hope? It's a confidence in the promises of God that has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. That's where I put my faith. And my faith is future-looking because it looks to the future in anticipation that God will make good on his promises. Despite what's going on right now, I believe and I confess that God will make good on his promises, and that's my hope. Remember your word, because it's only in your word that I can base my hope on for the future. And listen to what the psalmist says, this is my comfort in my affliction. That your promises give me, and here's the word again, they give me life. The opposite of your word is darkness and death. The presence of your word in our midst is the means for, our, for life. I think about this from the standpoint of Christian faith and existence, even in the life of the church. And I don't want to be reductionistic here. I realize that there are other sort of complicating or at least contributing theological matters that need to be before us as we make our way in the world to live faithfully before God. But I often wonder, and I I think about this in confession about myself, we water the grass, or the the grass is greenest, I had a friend tell me one time, where we water it. 
mountains and we're looking for greener grass. And it's as if the psalmist theologically or pastorally or what it means to take part in the life of the church itself. And here the psalmist is saying the water that needs, the grass that needs to be watered, and that's the greenest, the most verdant, is the place where God's word is central to our existence. Remember your word. In them, they give me hope. This is my comfort and my affliction. Your promises give life. We want life and life to the fullest. And here the psalmist says, if you want that, you'll find it in the word that witnesses to Jesus. And when I, take, when I think of your rules, he says, uh, from of old, I take comfort. This is my comfort and my stre- in distress to remember the truth of what you've said to us in your word. Remember, he says, verse 55, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. The blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. I remember, I take thought on, that's all covenantal language. To remember is to actively participate in the very presence of God given to us in the truth of Jesus Christ revealed in his word. I wanted to look as well um, at uh, uh, verses 81 through 96. I'll, I'll turn there. Um, we'll do this very quickly. In verse 81, here the psalmist as well is, is, is speaking into this understanding of God's word as comfort in our distress. And notice the language again and see if you feel the sense of repetition here. My soul, and here's the language of desire again, longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Do you hear that? Salvation and God's word are understood as parallel to one another. My soul longs to be saved, to see the very righteousness of God on display and the fact that he saves and redeems his people from their enemies, namely the enemy of sin and death. That's where the whole of the Bible goes. God wins over sin and death. It's his salvation. Well, how do I know that that's true? And where do I place my hope and confidence in if those claims are to be made? Answer, I hope in your word. It's God's word that again and again reinforces for us the truth of God's revealed salvation in Jesus. My soul longs to be delivered. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. What a a great metaphor. Apparently wineskins were hung in smoke. Uh, to help the, the fermentation process a little bit, um, much like we might put a wine bottle in a cellar or maybe on top of a mantle so it would come to, to, come to, um, to drinkability a little bit more soon. So here you have the psalmist saying, I become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. Do you get the sense again of distress and disorientation that the psalmist feels? I'm like smoke. I'm like a wineskin hanging in the smoke. There's falseness all around me. Everywhere I look, I don't know where I can lean on hard for the truth or something that's secure and not moving. And here he says, I live according to your word. Help me. Verse 89, I love this, it's beautiful. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. 
So if you compare and contrast verse 89 with some of the claims about the insolent or the proud or the wicked that are surrounding the psalmist, they're surrounding him like smoke, nowhere to settle confidently in the midst of all of this, the cacophony of options that are before us. But verse 89, what's the opposite of that? Where's stability? Where's stillness? Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I mean, think about the, 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 the pathos of that. If it wasn't your word that had been my delight, that which energized my soul and gave me life, if it wasn't for your promises, O oh God, then I would have perished in my affliction. I'll never forget your words, for by them, and here you see the psalmist saying it again, you have given me life. And listen to this beautiful confession. I am yours. Save me. For I've sought your precepts. The wicked lie and wait to destroy me. Look at verse 97. Oh, how I love your word. How I love your law. So we see here that God's word is God's delight. I mean, is is the psalmist's delight. And the last thing I want to look at with you today is this understanding of God's word as both wonderful and life-giving. We've talked about it quite a bit already. But I wanted to look toward the end of Psalm 119 knowing that if we, we, it would have taken us a while to get here. But I wanted to look at Psalm 129, 19, 119, verses 129 through 136. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. Again, this is the language of affection. This is the language of the artist. Your testimonies are wonderful. They're beautiful. The unfolding of your words, they give light. It imparts understanding to those who are simple. I open my mouth and I pant. Why? Because I long for your commandments. And then listen to this beautiful verse that I think we all need to hold on to desperately because we know that we cannot keep the law. It's beyond our capacity to fulfill the demands of God's law. That's what Jesus has done for us in his life and in his death. And that's what's so beautiful about Psalm 119, verse 132. Turn to me, O God, and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Those who love your name, those who worship you, those who turn to you and lift up eyes of desperation to you, O God, you never turn them away. It's impossible for God, in accord with his character, not to be gracious to those who turn to him in faith and repentance. I hold, out to, I hold on to your promises, and I'm turning to you again. So what's the reaction to that? If God has to turn, because of his character, must turn to us in graciousness and kindness, then my, my ways can be steady according to your promise. No iniquity will get dominion over me. Redeem me from oppression. And then listen to the language of the ironic blessing. And make your face shine upon your servant. And teach me your statutes. The shining face of God in the Bible is his word. It's the gift that God gives to his people as the extension of his own life-giving and life-altering presence. We need God's presence. 
And he gives us his presence in his word because his word is linked to the word, namely Jesus Christ, the one who came into the world to reveal to us the very character and identity of God as one who is severe in the face of sin and human injustice and merciful in the face of those who come to him in repentance and forgiveness. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with all of those who love your name. So, Father, we ask um, at the end of these four weeks together, we ask, Lord, in your mercy that you do that work in our hearts that we cannot generate, but that you would give us a deep love and longing for the truth of your word because we have a deep and inner longing, Lord, for you, Jesus Christ. Would you help us to believe that your promises are true? Would you let your word, Lord, extend itself through the pages of the Bible to those who might even be listening right now who are in distress and disorientation, no comfort in their life? Would the wonders of your word and the promises of your gospel revealed in these pages here in an Old and a New Testament do a life-giving and life-altering thing in their hearts, O Lord, in their minds, and mine as well? We ask you, O Lord, by the power of your spirit to bring life where there is death, to bring order where there is internal chaos, and to do so, Lord, by the effective power of your life-giving word that you've given to us in the Bible, and most especially in Jesus Christ. And we ask these things hopefully in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.